This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear A Sheltered Woman by Yi Yun Lee, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 2014. I don't like this soup, said the mother, who surely had a Chinese name, but had asked Auntie May to call her Chanel. Auntie May, however, called every mother baby's ma and every infant baby. The story was chosen by Samantha Hunt, whose four books of fiction include the story collection The Dark Dark, which was published in 2017. Hi, Samantha. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for having me. Um, how did Yi and Lee's work first come into your life? Um, that's a great question. I have to say, I think it was originally from The New Yorker. It wasn't this story. This wasn't the first Ian story I encountered. Maybe it was extra. Mm -hmm. This one, though, A Sheltered Woman has always stayed with me so deeply. There's no easy way to forget it. There's no easy way to feel like I'm done thinking about it. And I've been interested to see how often it returns to me again and again. And I think that I initially was so attracted to it because it's such a complicated story about mothering. Mm -hmm. And mothering stories, while not rare, um, ones that are complicated enough to satisfy me <laughs> are rare. That to find a story that questions mothering or even that digs in to the extent that this one does where, you know, we're bringing in themes of capitalism and the effects of capitalism on mothering. I mean, I don't know that I've seen that really anywhere else, um, maybe in some amazing science fiction, but never in a story that dwells in realism the way this story does. And the fact that Yeon decided to kind of capture this liminal moment of one month, you know, the first month. And to take that tiny, quiet microcosm and make it into this devastating, huge chasm of a universe, I, I find that unbelievable. Right. The story deals with a character who only takes care of babies in the first month of their lives and who also takes care of mothers in their first <laughs> month of, uh, of motherhood. I mean, motherhood is something you have written about a fair amount in your own fiction, yeah? Yeah. I, I um, am a mother of three and... I think that when I became a mother, I, like most mothers, was amazed at how little I knew uh, beforehand, despite, you know, having a mother, despite being a daughter, I knew so very little about how to do this and the way that it would change my identity, the way that it would open me up in a tremendous way. And so I, I went looking for literature that reflected that to some extent, and I don't know that I found too much of it. Even the word mother, the first place we go is someplace really very basic and stereotypical. I think, you know, it's like making dinner, making cookies, driving minivans. And there's none of that in A Sheltered Woman. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that because I did feel like when I first became a mother, having made life, I became obsessed with death, which ultimately, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And yet, no one had prepared me for that, and no one had told me that that was going to happen. So I kind of looked for the pieces that dealt with that question and tried to write these stories myself. So now here's Samantha Hunt reading A Sheltered Woman by Yi and Lee. A Sheltered Woman The new mother, groggy from a nap, sat at the table as though she did not grasp why she had been summoned. Perhaps she never would, Auntie May thought. On the placemat sat a bowl of soybean and pig's foot soup that Auntie May had cooked, as she had for many new mothers before this one. Many, however, was not exact. In her interviews with potential employers, Auntie May always gave the precise number of families she had worked for, a hundred and twenty-six, when she interviewed with her current employer, a hundred and thirty-one babies altogether. The family's contact information, the dates she had worked for them, their babies' names and birthdays, these she had recorded in a palm-sized notebook, which had twice fallen apart and been taped back together. Years ago, Auntie May had bought it at a garage sale in Moline, Illinois. She had liked the picture of flowers on the cover, 
purple and yellow, unmelted snow surrounding the chased petals. She had liked the price of the notebook, too, five cents. When she handed a dime to the child with the cash box on his lap, she asked if there was another notebook she could buy, so that he would not have to give her any change. The boy looked perplexed and said, no. It was greed that had made her ask, but when the memory came back, it often did when she took the notebook out of her suitcase for another interview. Auntie May would laugh at herself. Why on earth had she wanted two notebooks, when there's not enough life to fill one? The mother sat still, not touching the spoon, until teardrops fell into the steaming soup. Now, now, Auntie May said. She was pushing herself and the baby in a new rocking chair, back and forth, back and forth, the squeaking less noticeable than yesterday. I wonder who's enjoying the rocking more, she said to herself. The chair, whose job is to rock until it breaks apart, or you, whose life is being rocked away. And which one of you will meet your demise first? Auntie May had long ago accepted that she had, despite her best intentions, become one of those people who talk to themselves when the world is not listening. At least she took care not to let the words slip out. I don't like this soup, said the mother, who surely had a Chinese name, but had asked Auntie May to call her Chanel. Auntie May, however, called every mother baby's ma and every infant baby. It was simple that way, one set of clients easily replaced by the next. It's not for you to like, Auntie May said. The soup had simmered all morning and had thickened to a milky white. She would never have touched it herself, but it was the best recipe for breastfeeding mothers. You eat it for baby. Why do I have to eat for him, Chanel said. She was skinny, though it had only been five days since the delivery. Why, indeed, Auntie May said, laughing. Where else do you think your milk comes from? I'm not a cow. I would rather you were a cow, Auntie May thought, but she merely threatened gently that there was always the option of formula. Auntie May wouldn't mind that, but most people hired her for her expertise in taking care of newborns and breastfeeding mothers. The young woman started to sob. Really, Auntie May thought, she had never seen anyone so unfit to be a mother as this little creature. I think I have postpartum depression, Chanel said, when her tears had stopped. Some fancy term the young woman had picked up. My great-grandmother hanged herself when my grandfather was three days old. People said she'd fallen under the spell of some passing ghost, but this is what I think. Using her iPhone as a mirror, Chanel checked her face and pressed her puffy eyelids with a finger. She had postpartum depression. Auntie May stopped rocking and snuggled the infant closer. At once his head started bumping against her bosom. Don't speak nonsense, she said sternly. I'm only explaining what postpartum depression is. Your problem is that you're not eating. Nobody would be happy if they were in your shoes. Nobody, Chanel said glumly, could possibly be in my shoes. Do you know what I dreamed last night? No. Take a guess. In our village, we say it's bad luck to guess someone else's dreams, Auntie May said. Only ghosts entered and left people's minds freely. I dreamed that I flushed baby down the toilet. Oh, I wouldn't have guessed that even if I'd tried. That's the problem. Nobody knows how I feel, Chanel said, and started to weep again. Auntie May sniffed under the child's blanket, paying no heed to the fresh tears. Baby needs a diaper change, she announced, knowing that given some time, Chanel would acquiesce. A mother is a mother, even if she speaks of flushing her child down the drain. Auntie May had worked as a live-in nanny for newborns and their mothers for eleven years. As a rule, she moved out of the family's house the day the baby turned a month old, unless, though this rarely happened, she was between jobs, which was never more than a few days. 
Many families would have been glad to pay her extra for another week or another month. Some even offered a longer term. But Auntie May always declined. She worked as a first-month nanny, whose duties toward both mother and the infant were different from those of a regular nanny. Once in a while, she was approached by previous employers to care for their second child. The thought of facing a child who had once been an infant in her arms led to lost sleep. She agreed only when there was no other option, and she treated the older children as though they were empty air. Between bouts of sobbing, Chanel said she did not understand why her husband couldn't take a few days off. The previous day he had left for Shenzhen on a business trip. What right does he have to leave me alone with his son? Alone? Auntie May squinted at Baby's eyebrows, knitted so tight that the skin in between took on a tinge of yellow. Your pa is working hard so your ma can stay home and call me nobody. The year of the snake, an inauspicious one to give birth in, had been slow for Auntie May. Otherwise, she would have had better options. She had not liked the couple when she met them. Unlike most expectant parents, they had both looked distracted and asked few questions before offering her the position. They were about to entrust their baby to a stranger. Auntie May had wanted to remind them, but neither seemed worried. Perhaps they had gathered enough references? Auntie May did have a reputation as a gold medal nanny. Her employers were the lucky ones to have had a good education in China and, later, America, and to have become professionals in the Bay Area, lawyers, doctors, VCs, engineers. No matter, they still needed an experienced Chinese nanny for their American-born babies. Many families lined her up months before their babies were born. Baby, cleaned and swaddled, seemed satisfied, so Auntie May left him on the changing table and looked out the window, enjoying, as she always did, a view that did not belong to her. Between an azalea bush and a slate path, there was a man-made pond, which hosted an assortment of goldfish and lily pads. Before he left, the husband had asked Auntie May to feed the fish and refill the pond. Eighteen hundred gallons a year, he had informed her, calculating the expense. She would have refused the additional responsibilities if not for his readiness to pay her an extra twenty dollars each day. A statue of an egret, balanced on one leg, stood in the water, its neck curved into a question mark. Auntie May thought about the man who had made the sculpture. Of course, it could have been a woman, but Auntie May refused to accept that possibility. She liked to believe that it was men who made beautiful and useless things like the egret. Let him be a lonely man, beyond the reach of any fiendish woman. Baby started to wiggle. Don't you stir before your ma finishes her soup, Auntie May warned in a whisper, though in vain. The egret, startled, took off with an unhurried elegance, its single squawk, stunning Auntie May, and then making her laugh. For sure, you're getting old and forgetful. There was no such statue yesterday. Auntie May picked up Baby and went into the yard. There were fewer goldfish now, but at least some had escaped the egret's raid. All the same, she would have to tell Chanel about the loss. You think you have a problem with postpartum depression? Think of the goldfish, living one day in a paradise pond, and the next day going to heaven in the stomach of a passing egret. Auntie May believed in strict routines for every baby and mother in her charge. For the first week, she fed the mother six meals a day, with three snacks in between. From the second week on, it was four meals and two snacks. The baby was to be nursed every two hours during the day and every three or four hours at night. She let the parents decide whether the crib was kept in their bedroom or in the nursery, but she would not allow it in her bedroom. No, this was not for her convenience, she explained to them. There was simply no reason for a baby to be close to someone who was there for only a month. But it's impossible to eat so much. People are different, Chanel said the next day. Less weepy at the moment, 
she was curled up on the sofa, a pair of heating pads on her chest. Auntie May had not been impressed with the young woman's milk production. You can be as different as you want after I leave, Auntie May thought as she bathed baby. Your son can grow into a lopsided squash and I won't care a bit. But no mother or baby could deviate just yet. The reason people hired a first-month nanny, Auntie May told Chanel, was to make sure that things went correctly, not differently. But did you follow this schedule when you had your children? I bet you didn't. As a matter of fact, I didn't, only because I didn't have children. Not even one? You didn't specify a nanny who had her own children. But why would you... Why did you choose this line of work? Why, indeed. Sometimes a job chooses you, Auntie May said. Ha! Who knew she could be so profound? But you must love children, then. Oh, no, no, not this one or that one, not any of them. Does a bricklayer love his bricks? Auntie May asked. Does the dishwasher repairman love the dishwashers? That morning, a man had come to look at Chanel's malfunctioning dishwasher. It had taken him only twenty minutes of poking, but the bill was a hundred dollars, as much as a whole day's wages for Auntie May. Auntie, that's not a good argument. My job doesn't require me to argue well. If I could argue, I'd have become a lawyer like your husband, no? Chanel made a mirthless laughing sound. Despite her self-diagnosed depression, she seemed to enjoy talking with Auntie May more than most mothers, who talked to her about their babies and their breastfeeding, but otherwise had little interest in her. Auntie May put baby on the sofa next to Chanel, who was unwilling to make room. Now let's look into this milk situation, Auntie May said, rubbing her hands until they were warm, before removing the heating pads. Chanel cried out in pain. I haven't even touched you. Look at your eyes, Auntie May wanted to say. Not even a good plumber could fix such a leak. I don't want to nurse this thing any more, Chanel said. This thing? He's your son. His father's, too. Why can't he be here to help? Men don't make milk. Chanel laughed, despite her tears. No, the only thing they make is money. You're lucky to have found one who makes money. Not all of them do, you know. Chanel dried her eyes carefully with the inside of her pajama sleeve. Auntie, are you married? Once, Auntie May said. What happened? Did you divorce him? He died, Auntie May said. She had, every day of her marriage, wished that her husband would stop being part of her life, though not in so absolute a manner. Now, years later, she still felt responsible for his death, as though it were she and not a group of teenagers who had accosted him that night. Why didn't you just let them take the money? Sometimes Auntie May scolded him when she tired of talking to herself. Thirty-five dollars for a life— Three months short of fifty-two. Was he much older than you? Older, yes, but not too old. My husband is twenty-eight years older than I am, Chanel said. I bet you didn't guess that. No, I didn't. Is it that I look old, or that he looks young? You look like a good match. Still, he'll probably die before me, right? Women live longer than men, and he's had a head start. So, you too are eager to be freed. Let me tell you it's bad enough when a wish like that doesn't come true. But if it ever does, that's when you know that living is a most disappointing business. The world is not a bright place to start with, but a senseless wish, granted senselessly, makes it much dimmer. Don't speak nonsense, Auntie May said. I'm only stating the truth. How did your husband die? Was it a heart attack? You could say that, Auntie May said. And before Chanel could ask more questions, Auntie May grabbed one of her erring breasts. Chanel gasped and then screamed. Auntie May did not let it go until she'd given the breast a forceful massage. When she reached for the other breast, Chanel screamed louder, but did not change her position for fear of crushing baby, perhaps. 
Afterward, Auntie May brought a warm towel. Go, Chanel said. I don't want you here anymore. But we'll take care of you. I don't need anyone to take care of me. Chanel stood up and belted her robe. And baby? Bad luck for him. Chanel walked to the staircase, her back defiantly rigid. Auntie May picked up baby, his weight as insignificant as the emotions, sadness, anger, or dismay, that she should feel on his behalf. Rather, Auntie May was in awe of the young woman. That is how, Auntie May said to herself, a mother orphans a child. Baby, six days old that day, was weaned from his mother's breast. Auntie May was now the sole person to provide him with food and care, and this she did not want to admit even to herself, love. Chanel stayed in her bedroom and watched Chinese television dramas all afternoon. Once in a while she came downstairs for water and spoke to Auntie May as though the old woman and the infant were poor relations. There was an inconvenience of having them to stay, and yet there was a relief that they did not have to be entertained. The dishwasher repairman returned in the evening. He reminded Auntie May that his name was Paul, as though she were so old that she could forget it in a day, she thought. Earlier, she had told him about the thieving egret, and he had promised to come back and fix the problem. "'You're sure the bird won't be killed?' Auntie May said as she watched Paul rig some wires above the pond. "'Try it yourself,' Paul said, flipping the battery switch. Auntie May placed her palm on the crisscrossed wires. "'I feel nothing.' "'Good. If you felt something, I'd be putting your life at risk. Then you could sue me.' "'But how does it work?' "'Let's hope the egret is more sensitive than you are,' Paul said. "'Call me if it doesn't work. I won't charge you again.' Auntie May felt doubtful, but her questioning silence did not stop him from admiring his own invention. Nothing, he said, is too difficult for a thinking man. When he put away his tools, he lingered on, and she could see there was no reason for him to hurry home. He had grown up in Vietnam, he told Auntie May, and had come to America 37 years ago. He was widowed, with three grown children, and none of them had given him a grandchild or the hope of one. His two sisters, both living in New York and both younger, had beaten him at becoming grandparents. The same old story. They all had to come from somewhere, and they all accumulated people along the way. Auntie May could see the unfolding of Paul's life. He'd worked his days away till he was too old to be useful. Then his children would deposit him in a facility and visit on his birthday and on holidays. Auntie May, herself an untethered woman, felt superior to him. She raised baby's tiny fist as Paul was leaving. Say bye-bye to Grandpa Paul. Auntie May turned and looked up at the house. Chanel was leaning on the windowsill of her second-floor bedroom. Is he going to electrocute the egret, she called down. He said it would only zap the bird to teach it a lesson. You know what I hate about people? They like to say, that will teach you a lesson. But what's the point of a lesson? There's no makeup exam when you fail something in life. It was October, and the evening air from the bay had a chill to it. Auntie May had nothing to say, except to warn Chanel not to catch a cold. Who cares? Maybe your parents do. Chanel made a dismissive noise. Or your husband? Ha, he just emailed and told me he had to stay for another ten days, Chanel said. You know what I think he's doing right now? Sleeping with a woman. Or more than one. Auntie May did not reply. It was her policy not to disparage an employer behind his back. But when she entered the house, Chanel was already in the living room. I think you should know he's not the kind of person you thought he was. I don't think he's any kind of person at all, Auntie May said. You never say a bad word about him, Chanel said. Not a good word either. He had a wife and two children before. You think a man, any man, would remain a bachelor until he meets you? Auntie May put the slip of paper with Paul's number in her pocket. Did that man leave you his number, Chanel said? Is he courting you? Him? Half of him, if not more, is already in the coffin. Men chase after women until the last moment, Chanel said. 
Auntie, don't fall for him. No man is to be trusted. Auntie May sighed. If baby's pa is not coming home, who's going to shop for groceries? The man of the house postponed his return. Chanel refused to have anything to do with baby. Against her rules, Auntie May moved his crib into her bedroom. Against her rules, too, she took on the responsibility of grocery shopping. Do you suppose people will think we're the grandparents of this baby? Paul asked after inching the car into a tight spot between two SUVs. Could it be that he had agreed to drive and help with shopping for a reason other than the money Auntie May had promised him? Nobody, she said, handing a list to Paul, will think anything. Baby and I will wait here in the car. You're not coming in? He's a brand new baby. You think I would bring him into a store with a bunch of refrigerators? You should have left him home then. With whom? Auntie May worried that, had she left baby home, he would be gone from the world when she returned. Though this fear she would not share with Paul. She explained that baby's ma suffered from postpartum depression and was in no shape to take care of him. You should have just given me the shopping list, Paul said. What if you ran off with the money without delivering the groceries, she thought, though it was unfair of her. There were men she knew she could trust, including even her dead husband. On the drive back, Paul asked if the egret had returned. She hadn't noticed, Auntie May replied. She wondered if she would have an opportunity to see the bird be taught its lesson. She had only twenty-two days left. Twenty-two days, and then the next family would pluck her out of here, egret or no egret. Auntie May turned to look at Baby, who was asleep in the car seat. "'What will become of you then?' she said. "'Me?' Paul asked." Not you, baby. Why do you worry? He'll have a good life, better than mine. Better than yours, for sure. You don't know my life to say that, Auntie May said. I can imagine. You should find someone. This is not a good life for you, going from one house to another and never settling down. What's wrong with that? I don't pay rent. I don't have to buy my own food. What's the point of making money if you don't spend it, Paul said. I'm at least saving money for my future grandchildren. What I do with my money, Auntie May said, is none of your business. Now, please pay attention to the road. Paul, chastened into a rare silence, drove on, the slowest car on the freeway. Perhaps he'd meant well, but there were plenty of well-meaning men, and she was one of those women who made such men suffer. If Paul wanted to hear stories, she could tell him one or two, and spare him any hope of winning her affection. But where would she start? With the man she had married without any intention of loving, and had wished into an early grave? Or with the father she had not met, because her mother had made his absolute absence a condition of her birth? Or perhaps she should start with her grandmother, who vanished from her own daughter's crib side one day, only to show up twenty-five years later, when her husband was dying from a wasting illness. The disappearance would have made sense had Auntie May's grandfather been a villain, but he had been a kind man, and he had raised his daughter alone, clinging to the hope that his wife, having left without a word, would return. Auntie May's grandmother had not gone far. All those years she had stayed in the same village, living with another man, hiding in his attic during the day, sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night for a change of air. Nobody was able to understand why she had not gone on hiding until after her husband's death. She explained that it was her wifely duty to see her husband off properly. Auntie May's mother, newly married and with a prospering business as a seamstress, was said to have accepted one parent's return and the other's death with equanimity. But the next year... Pregnant with her first and only child, she made her husband leave by threatening to drink a bottle of DDT. Auntie May had been raised by two mythic women. The villagers had shunned the two women, but they had welcomed the girl as one of them. Behind closed doors, they had told her about her grandfather and her father, and in their eyes she had seen their fearful disapproval of her elders. 
Her pale-skinned grandmother, unused to daylight after years of darkness, had carried on her nocturnal habits, cooking and knitting for her daughter and granddaughter in the middle of the night. Her mother, eating barely enough, had slowly starved herself to death, yet she never tired of watching, with an unblinking intensity, her daughter eat. Auntie May had not thought of leaving home until the two women died, her mother first and then her grandmother. They had been sheltered from worldly reproach by their peculiarities when alive. In death, they took with them their habitat and left nothing to anchor Auntie May. A marriage offer arranged by the distant cousin of a man in Queens, New York, had been accepted without hesitation. In a new country, her grandmother and her mother would cease to be legendary. Auntie May had not told her husband about them. He would not have been interested in any case. Silly good man, wanting only a hard-working woman to share a solid life. Auntie May turned to look at Paul. Perhaps he was not so different from her husband, her father, her grandfather, or even the man her grandmother had lived with for years but never returned to after the death of Auntie May's grandfather. Ordinary happiness, uncomplicated by the women in their lives, was their due. "'You think by any chance you'll be free tomorrow afternoon?' Paul asked when he parked the car in front of Chanel's house. "'I work all day, as you know. You could bring baby like you did today.' To where? Paul said that there was this man who played chess every Sunday afternoon at East West Plaza Park. Paul wanted to take a walk with Auntie May and Baby nearby. Auntie May laughed. Why, so he'll get distracted and lose the game? I want him to think I've done better than him. Better how? With a borrowed lady friend pushing a borrowed grandson in a stroller? Who is he? Nobody important. I haven't talked to him for twenty-seven years. He couldn't even lie well. And you still think he'd fall for your trick? I know him. Auntie May wondered if knowing someone, a friend, an enemy, was like never letting that person out of one's sight. Being known, then, must not be far from being imprisoned by someone else's thought. In that sense, her grandmother and her mother had been fortunate— no one could claim to have known them, not even Auntie May. When she was younger, she had seen no point in understanding them, as she had been told they were beyond apprehension. After their deaths, they had become abstract. Not knowing them, Auntie May, too, had the good fortune of not wanting to know anyone who came after, her husband, her co-workers at various Chinese restaurants during her year-long migration from New York to San Francisco, the babies and the mothers she took care of, who had become only recorded names in her notebook. I'd say let it go, Auntie May told Paul. What kind of grudge is worthy of twenty-seven years? Paul sighed. If I tell you the story, you'll understand. Please, Auntie May said, don't tell me any story. From the second-floor landing, Chanel watched Paul put the groceries in the refrigerator and Auntie May warm up a bottle of formula. Only after he'd left did Chanel call down and ask how their date had gone. Auntie May held baby in the rocking chair. The joy of watching him eat was enough of a compensation for his mother's being a nuisance. Chanel came downstairs and sat on the sofa. I saw you pull up. You stayed in the car for a long time, she said. I didn't know an old man could be so romantic. Auntie May thought of taking baby into her bedroom but this was not her house, and she knew that Chanel, in a mood to talk, would follow her. When Auntie May remained quiet, Chanel said that her husband had called earlier, and she had told him that his son had gone out to witness a couple carry on a sunset affair. "'You should walk out right this minute,' Auntie May said to herself. But her body settled into the rhythm of the rocking chair, back and forth, back and forth. "'Are you angry, Auntie?' What did your husband say? He was upset, of course. I told him that's what he gets for not coming home. What's stopping you from leaving, Auntie May asked herself. You want to believe you're staying for baby, don't you? You should be happy for me that he's upset, Chanel said, or at least happy for baby, no? I'm happy that, like everyone else, you'll all become the past soon.
Why are you so quiet, Auntie? I'm sorry I'm such a pain, but I don't have a friend here, and you've been nice to me. Would you please take care of me and baby? You're paying me, Auntie May said, so of course I'll take care of you. Will you be able to stay on after this month, Chanel asked. I'll pay double. I don't work as a regular nanny. But what would we do without you, Auntie? Don't let this young woman's sweet voice deceive you, Auntie May warned herself. You're not irreplaceable, not for her, not for baby, not for anyone. Still, Auntie May fancied for a moment that she could watch baby grow. A few months, a year, two years. When is baby's pa coming home? He'll come home when he comes. Auntie May cleaned baby's face with the corner of a towel. I know what you're thinking, that I didn't choose the right man. Do you want to know how I came to marry someone so old and irresponsible? I don't, as a matter of fact. All the same, they told Auntie May stories, not heeding her protests. The man who played chess every Sunday afternoon came from the same village as Paul's wife and had long ago been pointed out to him by her as a potentially better husband. Perhaps she had said it only once, out of an impulse to sting Paul, or perhaps she had tormented him for years with her approval of a former suitor. Paul did not say, and Auntie May did not ask. Instead, he had measured his career against the man's. Paul had become a real professional. The man had stayed a laborer. An enemy could be as eternally close as a friend. A feud could make two men brothers for life. Fortunate are those for whom everyone can be turned into a stranger, Auntie May thought. But this wisdom she did not share with Paul. He had wanted her only to listen, and she had obliged him. Chanel, giving more details and making Auntie blush at times, was a better storyteller. She had slept with an older married man to punish her father, who had himself pursued a young woman, in this case, one of Chanel's college classmates. The pregnancy was meant to punish her father, too, but also the man, who, like her father, had cheated on his wife. He didn't know who I was at first. I made up a story so that he thought I was one of those girls he could sleep with and then pay off, Chanel had said. But then he realized he had no choice but to marry me. My father has enough connections to destroy his business. Had she not thought how this would make her mother feel, Auntie May asked. Why should she, Chanel replied. A woman who could not keep the heart of her man was not a good model for a daughter. Auntie May did not understand their logic. Chanel's depraved, Paul's unbending. What a world you've been born into, Auntie May said to Baby now. It was past midnight. The lamp in her bedroom turned off. The night light of swimming ocean animals on the crib streaked Baby's face blue and orange. There must have been a time when her mother had sat with her by candlelight, or else her grandmother might have been there in the darkness. What kind of future had they wished for her? She had been brought up in two worlds, the world of her grandmother and her mother, and that of everyone else. Each world had sheltered her from the other, and to lose one was to be turned against her wish into a permanent resident of the other. Auntie May came from a line of women who could not understand themselves, and in not knowing themselves, they had derailed their men and orphaned their children. At least Auntie May had had the sense not to have a child, though sometimes, during a sleepless night like this one, she entertained the thought of slipping away with a baby she could love. The world was vast. There had to be a place for a woman to raise a child as she wished. The babies... A hundred and thirty-one of them, and their parents, trusting yet vigilant, had protected Auntie May from herself. But who was going to protect her now? Not this baby, who was as defenseless as the others. Yet she must protect him. From whom, though? His parents, who had no place for him in their hearts? Or Auntie May, who had begun to imagine his life beyond the one month allocated to her? See, this is what you get for sitting up and muddling your head. Soon you'll become a tiresome oldster like Paul, or a lonely woman like Chanel, telling stories to any available ear. 
you can go on talking and thinking about your mother and your grandmother and all those women before them, but the problem is you don't know them. If knowing someone makes that person stay with you forever, not knowing someone does the same trick. Death does not take the dead away. It only makes them grow more deeply into you. No one would be able to stop her if she picked up baby and walked out the door. She could turn herself into her grandmother, for whom sleep had become optional in the end. She could turn herself into her mother, too, eating little, because it was baby who needed nourishment. She could become a fugitive from this world that had kept her for too long, but this urge, coming as it often did in waves, no longer frightened her, as it had years ago. She was getting older, more forgetful, yet she was also closer to comprehending the danger of being herself. She had, unlike her mother and her grandmother, talked herself into being a woman with an ordinary fate. When she moved on to the next place, she would leave no mystery or damage behind. No one in this world would be disturbed by having known her. That was Samantha Hunt reading A Sheltered Woman by Yi Yun Lee. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 2014 and won the Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award the following year. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Samantha, just to start at the beginning, Lee sets this character up. Auntie May as sort of devoid of emotion. You know, the babies, their mothers, it's a job. It's nothing more. She doesn't want to get to know them. She doesn't want to get close to them. Why then has she chosen a job that situates itself at this most raw, emotional, vulnerable point of both lives? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in everything in her life, Auntie May is trying to not feel, to not know. And yet, almost as a challenge to her steeliness, she presents herself to families who are at their most vulnerable moments. I think one of the reasons that she gets caught up on Chanel is because Chanel defies that. She defies the brokenness or the tenderness. When Chanel tells us that she's suffering from postpartum depression, I have to say that it almost makes me laugh that moment. It's like she's been fed a line, right? And she knows mm -hmm. she's supposed to say this as an excuse for why she can just go watch, you know, Chinese daytime dramas instead. I don't necessarily really buy that she's suffering from postpartum depression. And so I love it that in order to challenge Auntie May's unfeeling Lee creates a character who might be even more unfeeling right. than Auntie May. Right, who's had this baby for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. 
and oh doesn't want it. There's one moment where um, where Auntie May says that she's in awe at this moment where Chanel's considering abandoning her baby. Yeah. And that's like, whoa, wow. It's something that, that Auntie May has done now 131 times. She knows how to do it herself. What is she admiring in Chanel at that moment? There's there's something in Chanel's failure to mother that I think is going to liberate Auntie May, right? Is that she sees a bit of her own self, of course, in Chanel's gesture of abandonment. And I don't even know that we can believe that that's actually going to happen. But it's as if Auntie May feels she has taught her well, even though Chanel <laughs> arrives at that moment on her own accord, right? That she herself has already come to this to this marriage, to this motherhood as such a damaged human. There's this moment where Auntie May feels like she's getting to present her proud daughter or her uh-huh. stand-in for a daughter, right? Like, look, I, I messed her up as well as as I was messed up myself in some way. Right. It's interesting to think about how much they actually have in common, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, yeah. Chanel bringing up the story of the great grandmother who hanged herself when her baby was three days old. And it's such a parallel to Auntie May's own grandmother walking out on her newborn baby, also sort of inexplicably. So obviously, there's a connection between Auntie May and Chanel. There's a connection also in the fact that Chanel is the only mother who's ever taken an interest in her. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's an identification? What do you think it is? Well, I think there's something about Auntie May in, in that amazing last line when she says no one in this world would be disturbed by having known her, which, you know, in that silence, as soon as the story is over, I thought, no, that is not true. I am completely disturbed from having (laughs) known you now. And that there is something that links the two women in that being disturbed, right? And there's also some idea, I think, that if Chanel is not going to mother that Auntie May is going to have to, as if there's only one of them can have this position of being disturbed. And going back, we see that Auntie May has this notion about living in two worlds, right? We know Mm -hmm. that her mother and her grandmother, it's one of the only times that the word shelter is evoked actually in this story. Mm -hmm. And it says that they were sheltered by their peculiarities. And I love that peculiarity is what sheltered these women. And we're told that when they died, they took that, and it's funny because when I first read it, I read it as that they took that habit with them, but that's not what Lee has written. She wrote, they took that habitat with them, (laughs) the habitat of peculiarity. And so I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. She's constructed a house, a shelter that's made out of being the oddball, that's made out of being an outsider. It actually made me think in Murakami's book about the sarin gas attack underground, he makes these beautiful comments about what it means to be an outsider in Japanese society, you know, and it's like, how do you opt out? There's not really a good way to opt out besides being an artist. It's like you become a cult leader, you commit suicide. And I feel like May is presenting herself as the model of this opting out. And she opts out by shutting down emotion, by shutting down feeling, right? And it seems like almost a necessary response to the horror of capitalism that runs through this story. I mean, first of all, we have this woman who's replaced her name with a luxury brand. Mm -hmm. Um, It's amazing, right? I love that moment. Again, like the idea of humor that's in this story, it, it is like the darkest of darkest humors, but it's so wonderful and it's so vital. And even the idea of there's almost a greediness that Auntie May feels with the babies. They become numbers, you know, and Mm -hmm. she keeps this ledger book of babies, of human lives. And there's the moment where she's purchasing that book, right? And she says to the young man, do you have another one? (laughs) And and we're we're told, she says, if it's greed that makes me feel this way, it's greed that makes me want when there's not even enough life to fill one book and I still want a second book. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that she is not necessarily part of this capitalist system, but she is a foil for seeing the destruction of it and for realizing kind of how damaging it is in Chanel and and what it means to care, right? 
that there is no such thing as care under the system of capitalism in some way. It's only about the exchange of money. Right. Chanel asks her, will you take care of us? And she says, you pay me. Of course, I'll take care of you. Right. So she puts on the appearance of it being about the money for her. Yeah, we know she's not being paid that much, right? We hear she makes $100 a day to live in. And she notes that I think Paul has paid more than her for 20 minutes on a dishwasher. Yeah. And and Paul even has to say to her, why earn money if you're not going to spend it ever? Yeah. We don't know where it goes. Perhaps what's in it for her coming back to the idea of shelter is is actual physical shelter. She has a place to live every month. She is sheltered. She's sheltered from doing anything other than what she's doing. So she's set up this sort of alternate form of shelter for her that her, her mother and grandmother took away when they died. Yeah, removing their habitat. It's funny then, too, though, that idea of shelter, how it's linked to the notions of freedom in this book, too. I think about like Middle Eastern architecture or homes that are built around a courtyard in order to have an outdoor space that would protect the women from being seen. And here we kind of have that, but a, a twisted version of it where there's this backyard and Auntie May goes there, but you know, here's, here comes this egret who kills all the goldfish, right? So there's this idea that even within these closed and sheltered spaces, that there's some sense of not being safe, right? Mm -hmm. And this beautiful confusion that May brings when she thinks that the egret is a sculpture <laughs> and, and and thinks that it's man-made, right? That incredible weird moment of saying it's man-made and that men make all the beautiful and useless things. Right. And then when you realize, you know, oh wait, who actually made this egret? And it's the one moment maybe where we touch on some idea of faith or some idea of God in this story, you know, did this male God make this beautiful and useless thing in, in making nature. Oh gosh, that's like this incredible moment. And so then when we get Paul coming in to build an electrical fence over the goldfish and she's worried, she worries for the egret's safety still, you know, is it going to hurt the bird? And do I have long enough to see if the bird is going to be hurt? Again, like this accounting of days that happens there too. Mm-hmm. And aside from Paul, the story is completely empty of men. He's the only man allowed to enter this narrative other than the, the father who enters it by phone only. And we yeah. don't even hear it. We, it's, it's hearsay. Yeah. The whole concept of marriage at all in this, kind of, kind of there's a theme that the only good husband is a dead husband here, right? Um, yes. Though she, Auntie May, regrets her husband's death. Yeah. Surprisingly, she wishes for it, and then it happens, and she regrets it. And even the nature of his death, that it was over $35 that he was holding on to his hard-earned pay. And she finds it ridiculous. You know, yeah. what was, why was mm -hmm. that worth it? Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, all of the men that we hear about are sort of pointless, I suppose, except perhaps Auntie May's grandfather, who does raise her mother by himself for 25 years. But she dismisses them as having chosen an ordinary fate or wanting an ordinary fate. And it's an yeah. interesting line because then later in the story, she says she chose an ordinary fate. That she steps into the male role in some way. Mm -hmm. And she also um, is angry at herself for having dismissed her husband and other well-intentioned men. That idea that there are good men out there, and that she still can't allow them into her life for reasons that maybe are unknown to her or that she would really like to keep unknown to her. Right. Though then she lets Paul in. She actually encourages him to come in. She calls him. She does. She does. But she doesn't want to know his stories, right? <laughs> I love I love that line. That's so Ian Lee to have a, a character in, in a story who says, don't tell me any stories. I want to hear <laughs> I your stories. I love that too. Yeah. I love that too. Her entire disdain for storytelling or any sort of psychological examination is where the humor strikes me most in this piece. She calls the postpartum depression some fancy term, right? Right. Also, there's this motif of entering somebody else's mind. And when Chanel asks her to guess her dream, 
yeah. you know, anti-Mesa, the only, only ghosts can go in and out of other people's minds in that way. And, and that was what was said of the, I believe of the grandmother who killed herself, that a ghost had entered her. And then it's, it's also Auntie May's big fear that being known is being caught in someone else's mind, imprisoned in someone else's mind. The entire question of embodiment, right? The embodiment of pregnancy, the embodiment of sex, any of these dangerous scenarios where someone can enter your body, whether that's simply knowing you or a physical entry, are sites of tremendous danger for Auntie May. Right. But then again, back to your point, it's interesting that she chooses a profession that is so incredibly intimate. There's that moment, that amazing moment where she just grabs onto Chanel's breasts and she's going to massage her into producing milk, right? And mm -hmm. it's like, wow. And, and it's actually what makes Chanel cast her out. Yeah. Not that Auntie Mae listens to the casting out. She ignores that she's been fired in that moment and decides to stay. And the link even between the idea of breast milk and the soup that Auntie Mae mm -hmm. makes. Yep, milky white soup, yeah. Yucky, horrific whitenesses in both of those substances, right, <laughs> that, that um, haunt this story. And so Chanel's rejection of the cowness of motherhood, like Auntie Mae in that moment, I'm in awe of her saying, no, I'm not a cow. And where is her father? Yeah, I mean, there's a moment at the very beginning with the soup and Auntie Mae saying, well, it's not about whether you like it or not. It's not about any of that. And instantly there's this concept of duty, of doing something for others, and about it being at the same time completely impersonal. Yeah, there's a tremendous theme of care versus control and not being able to tell which is which, perhaps. And then in that question, the unavoidable theme that I find is you know, where is love in any of this? Where is love in marriage? Where is love in mothering? Where is love in any caretaking? And I think that's May's question too, that she's been so battered by feeling nothing or tr attempting to feel nothing for so long that I'm not sure she knows what it means to love or, um, you know, what to fill that hole with afterwards. Yeah. But this is the one household where she breaks all her rules. You know, she, she actually at a certain moment admits she does love this baby. She considers running away with him. Yes, that's what I was going to say. So much so that she might steal the baby and that we don't necessarily know that she doesn't at the end of this. Yeah, let's think about the ending. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> she considers stealing the baby, you mm. know, and and... It's actually kind of clear that no one would care if she did. I think um, she'd be doing the favor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then it seems to me she pulls back from that because of those last lines that you cited, that she's not going to leave mystery or damage in anyone's life when she's gone. And she's already old and she already feels, well, you know, I've made it this long. <laughs> And she's also choosing the ordinary fate. She's choosing not to be as crazy as her parents were, not to live in an attic for 25 years, not to, you know, starve yourself to death while staring at your child. Yeah, not to reproduce. Not to reproduce, yeah. Though we never know if that was a choice she made with the husband. Yeah. Well, she also talks about, you know, at the, at the end about the long line of women re refusing to try to understand themselves, right? And she's refused to try to understand anything about herself. And she sees it as a danger. You know, it's the danger of being herself. What is the danger? Well, it's, it's curious that at the end, she's telling us two things, right? She's telling us that it is a danger to know a person because you will become imprisoned. And at the same time, she turns around and says that that doesn't actually matter because even in the vacancy of not knowing the person, you're still going to be imprisoned. You're still going to lose your freedom. It says how the dead never leave her, right? That she's, she's right. stuck carrying these dead around. And so in some regard, I think she's damned if she does, damned if she doesn't, right? And there's a sense 
I walk away from this story of honest to goodness, not knowing where she's going to be able to move after this, that I can't see that she's going to go on to the next job, but I also can't see that she's going to stay in this home. And that's part of what got me hooked on this piece too, is that like inability to resolve Auntie May as a human, that I don't know where she's going to go. Mm -hmm. And so you sit with that ending and sit with that idea of, are you disturbed by her living? Which is, you know, really kind of a horrible question to ask about any human. Um, <laughs> am I disturbed by your living? What what an awful question to leave us with. And especially because I do arrive at the answer that, yes, I am disturbed by Auntie May's living. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then, you know, what is it that disturbs me? Well, it disturbs me that she's trying to walk around as a vacancy, that she's trying to remain empty. I, I would say she's not succeeding in that quest, but but even the idea of walking around with this interior courtyard, we'll say, that is empty. Yeah. Or useless. Yeah. Useless, right? Or only filled up with numbers, right? Or some sort of idea of tally marks. She asked Paul that amazing question. He says, you know, I want to know if that man's life had turned out better than mine. And she says, better how? Like, mm-hmm. what? what's the measure, right? What are we using to measure a life? Yeah, I think there's such a double uh, double meaning in that notebook because, yes, on one, on one hand, it's a ledger. It's her way of keeping track of me, keeping numbers. People are reduced to numbers. On the other hand, that notebook, she's clinging to it. She's had to re-tape it all up twice. It's falling apart. She's unwilling to give up this list of names, you know, where the people whose lives she's entered. Yeah. And even the fact, I think that the notebook has a floral cover, right? That there's some idea of growth or beauty mm-hmm. contained in that notebook for her. Yeah. It's not a nothing to her that she has 131 babies. Right. And her, <laughs> what she calls her one moment of greed actually <laughs> involves her trying not to get money back. Um, <laughs> it's true. <you> know? <laughs> Trying to not participate in capitalism, right? <laughs> she doesn't want that nickel. <laughs> I mean, everything is everything is very um, conflicted in this story. This moment when when Chanel kind of taunts her about her relationship with Paul and calls it a sunset romance and so on, and Auntie May says to herself, "You know what's stopping you from leaving? You want to believe you're staying for baby, don't you?" Yeah. But if it's not for the baby, what is it for? Yeah, I I love that moment when Chanel calls her out on the romance and Chanel saying, you know, I didn't know that an older man could be so romantic. And for the first time, we find Auntie Mae doesn't have anything to say. And I think it's because it so inflicts upon her idea of divorcing care from love, right? That Paul might be a man that she could love. The baby might be a baby she could love. And Chanel kind of putting it into language really hurts Auntie May because it does get inside. She feels something there. Right. Do you think it's important that it's a boy, the baby, and not a girl? I thought about that. I mean, especially thought about that in terms of that this is a family coming from China and what it would mean to have a girl child um, in America, right? After there were so many years where girls were not born under the one child policy in China, that um, I do think it's important that it's a boy. I think that when we have this theme of her being Lee calls her a gold medal nanny, Mm -hmm. and there's some sense in that gold, right? That we are raising these babies to become, she says, lawyers, doctors, VCs, Mm -hmm. and engineers. You know, that there is this sense of the finances that are attached to boy children and to men still. And Chanel's depression comes down to an issue of biology, right? She says it's like milk versus money, right? That men make money and she makes milk and Chanel's not happy with that equation at all. (laughs) And 
Yeah. And so I do think it's really important that it's a boy. Yeah. And also Chanel's marriage was a just a straight up form of revenge on her father. Yeah. Um, she couldn't care less about her mother. <laughs> yeah. Know? And and the only reason that the man married her is because her father could ruin his business. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. God, it's, a, mm. it's a loveless universe. <laughs> oh. Thank you, Yeon. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. In uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn, I read that Hubert Selby, when he was crafting that, I often teach that book and my students at the end are kind of, kind of ask that question like, why? Why did you make us read this? Mm -hmm. And that was his intention. He said, when I was writing that, I was trying to imagine a universe without love in writing that. I don't think that's what a sheltered woman does. It's more complicated. No, because the, the love is there. It's just not uh, confessed. Yeah. She's trying to push love down. She does not succeed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Samantha. Thanks for having me. Yian Lee has published four novels and two story collections, including Gold Boy, Emerald Girl, Where Reasons End, and Must I Go?, She's the 2020 winner of the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize and the Penn Jean Stein Book Award. Samantha Hunt is the author of three novels, Mr. Splitfoot, The Invention of Everything Else, and The Seas, for which she won the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 Award in 2006. Her story collection, The Dark Dark, was published in 2017. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.